This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Loopcast. So today we're going to talk about a very interesting topic about automotive security, society, and the law which is something that is slowly emerging um, as we see technology emerging in automotive industry. So today I'm very happy to have Josh Corman and Bo Woods on the line, and they are from I Am the Cavalry, and it's an organization that's nonprofit, and it focuses on issues where computer security intersects with public safety and human life. So they're fairly new. They've been around for a year. So Bo and Josh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, who would like to explain your organization for our listeners so they have a better idea of what you do? Josh, why uh, don't you go and take that one? Okay, yeah, I'll, Josh. T- I'll take a stab. Uh, so I actually did a, a episode early on after we formed, um, but we have a lot more clarity and purpose now one year later. Uh, but myself uh, and Nick Prococo were some cybersecurity researchers. And as we got older and we took more concern over our families or our safety or we tried to get involved in public policy or government or national security type issues, we kept naively believing that if we found the right adults, the right decision makers, the right people in power, that they would fix our concerns. And we got about as high and deep as anyone can get and realized you know, a sobering truth that the cavalry isn't coming, that no one is coming to save us. And if you're looking for the adults in the room, it basically is us. It falls to us. And that wasn't arrogance. That was humility. And it was the recognition that because the cavalry isn't coming, we have to be that. Um, so we challenged at DEF CON, the largest hacker conference in the world, we challenged our best and brightest white hat researchers to be more civically minded and say that uh, we have to be a technically literate voice of reason and an ambassador to public policy, legal scholars, academia, think tanks, the general public. Because as we, our basic problem statement was our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it. So while our best and brightest are spending $80 billion annually to defend credit cards, we're still having plural breaches per week. And we can't afford that same failure rate to transfer over to our medical devices, our automobiles, our homes, or our public infrastructure. And those four projects respond to really drive uh, public safety awareness before we need it. We don't want to sell FUD. We don't want to scare people. But we also want to make sure that as we get the benefits from this technology dependence, we also identify and balance the risks. Um, and, and we've been trying to do this for about a year. And that's a very important cause with everything that's emerging. So to get this talk started, why don't you give us a history of automotive security? Um, and why do we have this increase in integrated integration of digital components into machines that have been relatively free of digital components? Uh, I'll take that one. Um, so if you look back at the history of, of automotive security, really it's tied to, uh, in large part, um, safety. Right. To be able to do a lot of the things that you need to do in cars like uh, airbags, uh, anti-lock braking systems, um, you know, those have been around for decades. 
uh, and now more recently things like adaptive cruise control, backup cameras, you need some automated decision-making systems. You need something that uh, ties into the sensors to say, okay, you're going a certain uh, speed with a certain trajectory, uh, and all of a sudden you've hit the brakes. Um, Your speed isn't slowing down, but uh, you still need to apply the brakes. So we need to do some intelligent um, work here and start to slow you down differently, Uh, that being the case of uh, anti-lock brakes. in airbags, it's a similar thing, similar process that, that happens. Uh, and that can really only be done uh, or done most efficiently through the use of uh, computers, basically. Uh, and where it started out as small little microcontrollers, um, it's really expanded into much more general purpose systems. Uh, things like ARM chips, which are similar to what you might find in your, your phone. Um, so there's been a, a gradual growth of this. Uh, over the past two, three decades. Um, and that's a similar trend as things you're seeing in other devices that are becoming more connected where previously they didn't have uh, technology or they didn't have computing technology uh, and connectivity to a network or to Bluetooth stacks uh, built into them. In order to do more with those devices, uh, one of the classic examples is the the connected fridge, right, that uh, you've got a refrigerator with a display on it that's connected to the internet that's able to tell you, you know, you're out of milk, you need to buy some more. Um, to be able to to bring those types of um, uh, function, functions, features, capabilities to uh, the consumers, um, you have to have computers, you have to have connectivity. So that's a, a just really broad scale, uh, how you get more uh, of these types of technologies into devices that traditionally haven't had them. Yeah, I think software is not new in cars. And in fact, the irony is we were just talking to Stefan Savage, uh, one of the first documented academics doing car hacking. And he said it was actually government regulation that drove a lot of the early technology into cars, right? The ABS that, uh, the, or the braking systems that Bo just referred to, but also emission standards. Um, so having software isn't necessarily new. It's that it's increasingly connected and therefore exposed. So we like to do a little word game for our neighbors where if it has software, it's hackable. And if it's connected, it's exposed. So we're increasingly having connected, exposed toasters in our homes as we put more technology onto them. And if you think about it like that, look how often your home computer's compromised, or look how often you know the credit card systems are targeted, and look how often we fail. It's not acceptable to have those failure rates or those failure scenarios. And, and modern cars are now not just computers on wheels, but a network of computers on wheels. And the way we tried to phrase this in the letter was, you know, the tone was meant to be, look, uh, auto CEOs, you have a proud tradition of safety. Um, the Unsafe at Any Speed book by Ralph Nader was about 50 years ago. And ever since then, there's been a pretty strong march towards continuous improvement of safety. I love some of the new safety features in my car. So what we're basically saying is, look, you're masters of your domain. We're masters of our domain. And as you look at modern cars, our domains have collided. And we think the best outcomes will happen the soonest if we collaborate together and get in front of a lot of these emerging attack surfaces and risks and, and accidents and adversaries. And I encourage our listeners to go to the links that we'll post under this talk of the open letter for um, auto cyber safety um, that Josh and Bo have come up with. So, you know, please read these over for yourself because it really is an interesting debate. And as you said, we're seeing... Basically, as you say on your website, these computers on wheels, it's kind of a fun little catchy (laughs) phrase, but 
I mean, you're seeing more actual computer screens integrated now in cars, and as you're saying, um, Wi-Fi access, um, all kinds of things. So what kind of security risks does that leave a consumer, a driver open to? Um, kind of give us some of the scaries, so to speak, in this debate. Well, it's about capability. So a few that are demonstrable through either the academic research or Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek have done two years of car hack talks now at DEF CON um, with mixed reviews on if it's realistic or not. But the bottom line is software does control your brakes. So they were able to disable the brakes um, on a live video. It controls the steering column, and that's the one that scares me the most because the parking assist and collision avoidance, it's a very strong motor on the steering column. And there's a few cuts of the video where you can see the, the steering wheel is strong enough to rip out of the driver's hands and, and turn the car. Uh, so pretty much anything you can do to the car on purpose, you can do um, by sending signals to the, the CAN bus or other parts of the infrastructure. And again, most of those historically have been required physical access. If you have physical access, there's other ways to hurt people. Um, but as you add connectivity, Bluetooth, near field, Wi-Fi, 4G. I just saw a car commercial last night that 4G LTE with Wi-Fi are standard in all new vehicles from this one maker or one line of vehicles. And as you add that, you're inheriting all the same kind of risks you see on home PCs or enterprise PCs. And um, not identical. We have Fortunately, we have fewer active adversary classes that want to hurt you and your family and cars. But... That's just a matter of time. As you see, everything that's hackable is really hard to do at first and then becomes easily weaponized or made more simple through scripts like uh, Metasploit or there's a website, Shodan, that shows people industrial control systems directly connected to the Internet with default usernames and passwords. So as we, what we want to see is that the dependence doesn't and the, and the attack service doesn't grow faster than our ability to detect and respond and make smart choices. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the one of the misconceptions out there that uh, you've seen come up a few times um, is that you can only do this with uh, local access to the car. In other words, you have to be able to take the car apart in order to um, engage with the software. Uh, but as Josh mentioned, uh, there's a lot of uh, connectivity that's going in, uh, even to the point where everything is always connected via um, you know the cell network uh, and. It, some of the research that, uh, that that team that Josh mentioned, Stefan Savage's team out at the University of uh, California, San Diego, did is from 1,500 miles away, they were able to uh, get access to the car. Um, one of the cool things, I think, that came out of that research is they weren't just looking to break the car. They were looking to help the manufacturers fix it, and they worked really mm -hmm. closely with those guys. So where they were able to identify points in um, the the sequence of attacks that they had to use, they could go in and selectively fix some of those or make them harder to overcome uh, so that, you know, today it's way more difficult than it was in 2008, 2009, 2010 um, to get remote access to the cars. But the, the, that possibility certainly still exists. Yeah, and this is an evolving situation as well. I mean, when we wrote the letter um, and the five critical capabilities we think every car needs to have, uh, a lot of people were judging, you know, that against today's adversaries or today's today's capabilities. But what they're forgetting is right uh, right now in other countries, um, in a lot of vehicles pipeline, there's a remote kill switch to be able to disable vehicles from anywhere if they're stolen or if they leave a certain geofencing that you draw 
Um, and a lot of that was driven out of um, rampant hijacking of tractor trailer trucks and payloads in Brazil, for example. Um, so those capabilities now give you a remote access capability that can disable the car or fleets of vehicles, um, which are created brand new tax scenarios for all sorts of different kinds of motivations that you could imagine. Uh, how would you like to disable all emergency response vehicles or all shipping of food or create traffic jams on demand um, in concert with other things? So these are fairly serious scenarios, not just for a single car at a time, but potentially large classes or swaths of vehicles. And there's the vehicle-to-vehicle protocol, which is how cars are going to signal to each other for conflict, uh, collision avoidance, and other sort of traffic streamlining and shaping. And those have to be trustworthy. And while the protocols are being designed with security in mind, a lot of them implicitly trust the integrity of any source of that vehicle-to-vehicle. And we just sent you a link. But while we were preparing for this, there's yet another advance in self-driving cars. Now every self-driving car in the state of California is allowed to drive on the, the highways as opposed to just the, the Google ones or whatnot. So I still need to read that article. But as this marches forward, more and more connectivity and trustworthy communications and trustworthy sources, um, we're placing even more trust here. So we really got to get it right. Yeah, and especially if you've been on the roads in California, that's the last thing they need is self-driving cars because a lot of the drivers are just really wild <laughs> as it is. So that's going to throw in a whole nother uh, card into this game. So looking at these security issues, what are the different approaches available to make security of automobiles safer? I mean, what are the fixes or do we still need to figure out what the fixes are? Yeah, so I think... Um you know, you can look at, uh, maybe it would, would help first to talk about the wrong way to do it, which is to just not think about potential consequences, to connect everything, have everything be software driven, have no security built in. Um, if you look at it uh, like that, that's more similar to the way that the technology industry or the computer technology industry advanced in the 1980s through today. Which is um, it was it was largely done through, hey, we need to do this cool thing. Uh, you know, spreadsheets on computers is the famous uh, famous example. I think it was VisiCalc, uh, the first killer app for desktop PCs, and there were no adversaries at that time, or very very few adversaries, and accidents were largely confined to you know your computer crashes or reboots. So. Uh, as that developed, there became a, a large industry around um, securing devices, securing computers. And, and as Josh mentioned, it's about $80 billion per year now in services and technologies to secure a fundamentally insecure infrastructure that's been built over time just because that's the way it started. I think uh, one of the most exciting things for me in this whole infrastructure and this whole concept is to some degree we get to go back and rethink what it means to do security. Do we build it in? Do we add it on? You know, what are the drivers? What are the economics? Uh, what are the different levers that we can pull uh, to fix the problem so that it's so that it's not an issue? Um, and I think that uh, you know one of the one of the things that I think everybody kind of wants is to have a secure system um, that is uh, has all the features that that customers want that is out to market quickly and with few side effects, right? So as long as we remember that those are kind of the goals, then we can work towards those uh, in a way that's uh, rational and um, good. 
Yeah, the um, we we've had a lot of experience doing security the wrong way um, in the enterprise and with payment cards. Um, and while some of these positions are debatable, um, you know, Bo and I and a lot of the other guys drawn to the cavalry movement have really you know cut our teeth and tried to be at the top of our game on defending large enterprises and Fortune fifty companies and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And um, one of the things we found is security is a negative <laughs> out of the gate, just in tone, right? Security is usually a cost that it comes at the opportunity cost of something else, and it's usually an inhibitor preventing you from things you want to do. So a few years ago, we tried an experiment called Rugged Software, and we wrote a Rugged Software manifesto, which was the idea of almost like a Hippocratic oath for people who write software and digital infrastructure. Like just recognize their talented, persistent adversaries, recognize the dependence and consequences of failure. And if and I think the approach we want to take here is that you just have to know that um, you can't keep using 2003 era security mindsets for 2003 era threats and 2003 era notions of internet and connected technology. So one of my positions I've taken before as an individual is that if you look at the payment card industry and how we protect credit cards. Um, it's very prescriptive. It's lots of aftermarket security. It's very brittle. It's very onerous. There's a high burden to trying to maintain compliance. And as a hypothesis, um, one could argue it's an abject failure. Right? It did a good job transferring risk and blame, but it didn't do a lot of good reducing or eliminating card fraud as evidenced by you know, Target alone hurt one-third of Americans. And between all the different breaches you have over the last several weeks, pretty much everyone's hit a couple times a year. So that kind of abject failure, we, we don't want to replicate that here. And we try to be more elegant. And instead, what we're saying is all systems fail. And we came up with five critical capabilities that give you a ready posture towards failure. You know, our too long didn't read version of the much more you know, verbose versions on the website are tell us what you're doing. You know, tell your customers what you're doing to avoid failure. Tell us what you're doing because you know you're going to miss some things. How are you taking help from third parties acting in good faith to avoid failure? Number three is we want to capture evidence and learn from failure to make smarter design choices in the future. Number four is you want to have um, the ability to have a prompt and agile response to failure. And number five is you want to isolate and contain failure so that you can compromise the radio without uh, having the brake shut off, so to speak. So those five things of um, what are you doing to secure your systems? How are you taking help without suing researchers? How are you having forensically sound evidence capture um, to, to capture the evidence that you've been tampered with, a secure update mechanism, and then separating critical from non-critical systems? These aren't telling them to go buy a bunch of security products that may or may not work. They're a mature response and an economic response to the reality that things like Heartbleed are going to affect your car. And when they do, you really want to have the ability to um, have a ready posture and a prompt and agile response so you don't have to do factory recalls, have material impact the stock price, put your customers and their and their families at risk. Um, we think this is a very elegant, mature, proactive stance as opposed to just enumerating lots and lots of individual bugs and individual cars. But we had a statement to ourselves when we started this that we have no interest in finding and fixing a single flaw in a single car from a single manufacturer. What we want to do is prepare the industry for the reality of connected cars. And what kind of response, if any, have you had from the auto industry at this point? Well, um, <laughs> varied, but uh, 
stunningly, we've had very little formal response. Um, we think it was it kind of caught some of them by surprise, and we're trying to dig into some of that. But um, we've had very positive response thus far. Bo and myself have been on a call nearly every business day with someone who's either a car manufacturer, part of the government, um, or part of the OEM supply chain or the insurers. But we've had interested parties about every day since in the last month since DEF CON. Um, most recently, yesterday, SAE um, has, uh, I can't remember what SAE stands for, but it's the Vehicle Electronic Systems Security Committee uh, invited us to brief them, uh, which has representatives from nearly every car company and OEM uh, and government agency. It's an open forum, um, but none of them were speaking on behalf of their employers. But they showed keen interest in understanding uh, what we were asking for, how well it matched with some of the things they have under active art research and development. And in fact, extended an invitation for us to formally join uh, SAE as a, a collaborator, which is exactly the tone we wanted. I think there's a little bit of concern over what motives we may or may not have had, but we're, we want to fix this with a long view. We want to be collaborators and we want to be an asset to them for mutual benefit, not just sh name and shame them in the public. Right. And most of the interactions we've had have been, uh, have been very positive um, from people inside the organizations that they serve, a lot of times who have been saying, look, we've been talking about some of these things for a long time. We're really excited to hear someone else saying the same things that we are, yeah. uh, who have a, a domain of expertise that's in cybersecurity, not necessarily in automobiles. We thought we were doing the right thing, but to hear you say it uh, reinforces our instinct. Yeah, the um, that was one criticism we got day one was, well, you should have talked to some people in automotive. And one of the things we like to remind people, we actually even say it in the letter, but we spent nine months working with car researchers, but also with people who work at these car companies or in and around the industry with some of the oversight and government agencies. And we really wanted to get the content and tone right. So this wasn't us lobbying, you know, casual advice from the bleachers or the cheap seats. This was... Um, uh, really trying to make sure that we were an asset. And in a lot of cases, they knew what they wanted to do, but they couldn't quite get the executive support to do it. Or they were doing part of you know, um, the segmentation and isolation, but they had heard at other conferences that the techniques that they were spending years of R&D to deploy had already been defeated uh, by adversaries or researchers years prior. And, and the point here isn't so much that we want to give them new priorities. It's that if you're going to go to the effort to invest in logical and physical isolation to keep people safe, you want, we want to improve the aim and caliber of that investment so that you can avoid common pitfalls where we've learned the hard way. Um, so to that end, I think it's, it's been called spot on. Uh, there's discussion about weaving our language into some of the industry uh, standards and guidelines that are being um, reviewed and refreshed and, and offered forth right now. And that's exactly what we wanted to do was become an active participant. We know that they're going to get there and we know that they're trying, but we know from things like, you know, Facebook and other social media sites that get hit by Heartbleed, you can try to do SSL and even implement it properly and still have a very, very large impact when a, a major attack is in the wild like we saw with Heartbleed. So, um, so we want to take the best and brightest we have who have a civically minded altruistic kind of background. We're not looking for commercial gain here. We simply want to help prepare them uh, to keep their cars safe for public good, public safety, and even out of selfish interest so that our cars are as safe as they can be. 
And do you think when you have more interaction with the automotive industry that they'll be responsive to this? Or do you think they're going to look at it as another means of imposing restrictions on them? Although, by listening to what you say, they're positive restrictions. They're making cars and the automobile industry safer for everybody. Um, but looking at this, do you think that they'll look at, look at it as useful or look at it as a hindrance to their production of new, better, higher tech automobiles? Yeah, I think, um, or, or I hope anyways, that uh, they're inviting us in to some degree to talk about this. Uh, I think that, you know, from kind of the beginning, we've said that uh, there's a certain amount of trust that people already place in these devices and cars, right? And we don't want to destroy that trust. We want to preserve that trust and ensure that it's justified. And as decision makers are going about their um, going about their jobs, um, doing uh, building better cars, innovating, um, bringing us new technologies, they're going to be making these choices. We just want those choices to be fully informed within yeah. the context. I also think that um, it's one of those where if you make a choice now especially in the car industry, that's going to affect you for 5, 10, 20 years down the line. So if you look at it from um, uh, a, a long perspective, you can really start to see how um, building some of these uh, smart decisions in early uh, reduces your overall cost. Um, even if right now, as some people have pointed out, that security is not a driver for buying automobiles, um, and that may be true, uh, but you can at least look to reduce costs overall. I mean, if a heartbleed type uh, incident happened with automobiles and you had no way to patch that car, then you'd be forced with the choice of do we either do a physical recall, rip out the equipment, put in new equipment, or could we just send a, an update over the air? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, the economics of this is, uh, is really going to be something that uh, helps drive that message home um, once uh, once we find the right combination of um, incentives that really do matter to car makers um, and put it in the language that they can understand. Yeah, some of these um, car companies were a little bit on their heels because they said, well, we're already doing all these things. And some of the ones a little more honest with themselves said, well, we're trying to do some of these things where we have some in development, but we certainly want to make sure that the aim or the or how comprehensive we are with them embraces the full spirit of what these guys are offering. Um, but to Bo's economic point, um, while your buyers may not pick a five-star rated cyber safety car over a three-star because they may not even understand what that means, um, your average buyer can't tell how you qualify for a three-star crash-rated car over a five either. They just know that if they want safety, they go for the five-star. Um, and we're not necessarily looking to elevate this to the same level, but it is think how damaging it is for PR alone when there's an airbag recall issue or faulty brake pads, um, something wrong in the supply chain. And if that's protracted and you're in the news every night, it's that's a measurable, quantifiable risk, even if you don't have actuarial tables for death tolls from hacking. So we know that um, uh, you know, a stitch in time saves nine and a penny, you know, penny saved, penny earned, and all those IBM bug studies about making sure you have the capability to have a prompt and agile response. The alternative is something like a safety update, as Bo said, is a very costly recall 
um, a lot of public damage to brand and reputation, potentially material impact to stock price. And these are things that their CFOs and CEOs are caring about, especially in, in such a large part of the GDP. So they have to wrestle with you know, the crisis that they're facing, but we're hoping that they see this not as a burdensome thing like buy antivirus and IPS and firewalls, but rather as these capabilities at least have give us the best possible footing so that when we have inevitable issues, we can minimize the exposure, damage, and cost to us and to our customers. Right. And one additional thing, I think um, one of the things that we've come to realize that after studying the automotive industry for a while is that they already have a really good track record of building in safety across the board, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all the way through their supply chain. And this is just an extension of that. So I think that if we can maybe make the case in in those terms, they'll understand that this can be a really beneficial thing for them. That It's something that they're already doing everywhere else. Uh, and the way to do it here is something that we can help them accelerate their timeline on so that they don't have to go through some uh, some awkward steps before they find the right mix. Yeah, and one more example. We, we often hear a thought-terminating cliche that, well, they're trying to shave pennies off of parts. You know, their their profit margins are horrible. But I like to point out a piece of counter evidence, which is that there's backup cameras in a lot of cars well before there was any sort of discussion about making that a mandatory safety feature. And it's not cheap to have the camera nor the display. And yet they made that investment not because of the cost, but because of the value of that cost. And it's become an an incredibly valuable safety feature and convenience feature to preventing tons of kids from getting backed over um, throughout at least the U.S. stats were staggering. I think they were given the, the award for top safety feature uh, and that's what's driving it to be more of a standard feature now. No one forced them to do that but they saw the value in doing so to their brand and to their their loyalty. So building on that idea of safety standards, what do you consider to be some of the challenges of bringing safety standards to cars? Looking at the legal aspect, the insurance aspect, and as you were saying, this investment for car makers. So I was wondering if you could touch on those bases a bit. Mm. That's a tough one. Uh, I might take <laughs> a stab at it and let Josh do some thinking uh, and then respond. Um, but I see this, uh, what we're advocating for, less as a, a standard, uh, which tends to become, you know, the way to do something. Rather than that, we want to build capabilities, which are a way to achieve uh, a goal, which is safety, right? So by advocating for um, more attention to the, the capabilities we've talked through, uh, we're not telling them how to do things. We're just saying these are the areas that you might want to look at when you're going to build uh, your cars because these are uh, ways to go about achieving certain goals that align to your goals, that align to customers' goals, that uh, ensure that you're doing the uh, the right thing and so that you can, to some degree, um, preempt potential regulation or mandated standards by outside bodies, which just become costly uh, for everybody involved. So uh, I think that that's, uh, that's the perspective I take, but I'm afraid that maybe I've lost some of the nuance. Maybe Josh can add that in. Well, I mean, those phrases are almost kryptonite to security researchers, but I know your uh, podcast likes to talk about policy. So one of the ways I'll answer it is um, Bo, myself, Nick, Katie, a lot of the folks involved in the cavalry have, have addressed insurers and reinsurers plural times on these these topics. 
Uh, we've also addressed a lot of the think tanks um, on throughout the political spectrum. So regardless of your posture towards you never met a regulation you didn't like or you never met a regulation you liked and all points in between, um, most parties have some common ground when it comes to public safety or being efficient with markets. And I think the reason people like this is uh, for highly technical things, this kind of a capabilities approach or self-regulatory organizational approach where we're saying you can get out in front of maybe overreaching or harsh um, or knee-jerk responses by imposing a couple capabilities on yourselves. There's a possibility here to be very positive and differentiate in a free market and use just normal free market forces. On the other hand um, – if you're a trial lawyer or an insurer, such a this this positive attestation model basically allows you to see at a glance, wow, you know, a car that can't get a remote update is going to be incur more risk for our premiums than a car that can be updated, and and that may in fact guide better um, premiums and, and choices like that for the insurers. And from the trial lawyer perspective, if there is an inevitable you know kid getting run over by a self-driving car. The cars that failed to invest in some of these basic capabilities are probably going to be used. This is probably going to be used in a, in a fairly unfriendly way. But we structured it in such a way where we understood the the, rec, the the nature of this multi-stakeholder model with tension between the various stakeholders, and just wanted to give something that was clear and you know immutable truths about the kind of posture anyone would need towards failure. Um, doesn't mean it's perfect and doesn't mean it wouldn't introduce unintended consequences, but leaving it capability and attestation based allows some room for natural experimentation and ha see what shakes out in a free market and in the actual, you know, what leads to safer cars. So I don't think there's any single answer, but we know here's the answer we don't want to see. And I, I may have said this on the first podcast, but um, we, we reject terms like cyber Pearl Harbor and cyber Hiroshima and cyber 911. They're fairly offensive to lots of different constituents. But what we do talk about is uh, a cyber Cuyahoga moment. And in the history, what was it, the turn of the century, 19th century, there was so much pollution in the U.S. that the Cuyahoga River in Ohio caught on fire and stayed on fire. They couldn't put it out. And it took that kind of an inflection point to institute things that we now see in the EPA and a bunch of environmental protection laws. And we got religion and we, we fixed things. But many believe that the reaction was very egregious and very excessive and still has some of the toughest laws in the books. And we don't think that our efforts are going to avoid such a cyber Cuyahoga moment for cars or for medical devices. But what we hope is that by framing these conversations and talking about the capabilities necessary and what a thoughtful, planful response might look like is that we're better prepared when that moment does come. But we also stave off, you know, really uh, aggressive, overreaching, or knee-jerk reactions when those when that time does come. And that seems to be the common ground that all those multiple stakeholders seem to like, a thoughtful, planful response instead of something that takes years to undo. And expanding on like the legal aspect of things, one thing that keeps on coming into my mind when you're talking about um, security researchers and, you know, coming up with ways to make automobiles safer is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, yeah. which makes it very difficult for researchers to so-called hack an automobile. So how do you encourage proper legal, proper um, research and the legal aspect so that researchers can actually do this and, and find the issues and work with the car companies 
as opposed to doing this and potentially doing something illegal and getting in trouble for it. We should be really careful and clear on this. Um, the star, star number two is do you have a published coordinated disclosure policy embracing third-party researchers uh, acting in good faith? And the, the basic gist of that is do you outline how a researcher can research you without you suing them? <laughs> you know, okay. This is the please don't sue me um, clause because we know that a lot of the talent is going to come from the private sector through you know, people trying to do the right thing. What what what, what we've talked to are we have a lot of lawyers, law professors, policy people. Or I think you called them policy wonks um, earlier. They um, the, they're, they've been advising the cavalry since day one, and and again we have them on both all sides of the political spectrum. But they've basically been unclear in their answer to this question. We said, okay, that's going to prevent a civil case, but the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a federal law, and what's to stop uh, an aggressive uh, district attorney from prosecuting um and they don't have a great answer they basically say well they're not really going after someone unless they're doing a crime or they don't want to make an example out of you unless you stick up and stick out too far but there is a risk and we try to caution the researchers in this area that um while they're not likely to target you there's nothing stopping an arbitrary and capricious you know uh, action and that's why you've seen such long protracted court cases around andrew ottenheimer aka weave or the aaron schwartz case and you have people like EFF and others who are, are getting very good at inserting mm-hmm. themselves and trying to make some sense out of that very old and, and brittle law. Uh, and the last little bit I'll say is while we want to make it clear that there is some risk in doing so that can be mitigated if you have these coordinated disclosure policies and there's an invitation to do so, um, we're not simply educating the public and whatnot. Um, several of us have been doing um, – congressional briefings uh, in the U.S. and outside the U.S. to try to educate lawmakers and engage and explain how you simultaneously need this critical uh, public safety, public good research from our talent pool and laws like CFA have a chilling effect. So while you need us and, and, and need the, the benefits and services we can provide and are willing to provide, um, if those laws get amended or changed, um, research and, and necessary public safety research should be incorporated. And they've been very receptive. So I, I've done about 80 of them this year myself. There's others in and around the cavalry and other movements who too have been meeting with people on the Hill about CFA specifically. But this can't simply be working with industry. We also have to make sure that we've got our bases covered with law uh, and, and, the, and the new upcoming laws. Yep, I'd agree with that. And, uh, you know, to some degree, laws are um, not arbitrary, no matter how arbitrary they may seem. They kind of codify social standards and agreed upon social norms. Um, So uh, knowing that, as a researcher, um, you can slightly change or uh, be very careful about how you go about engaging in some of these research projects, right? So that you're making it clear that... um, uh, that what you're doing, what you're offering, is in the, the interest of public safety uh, and human life. Um, we have a, a position statement on our site uh, on disclosure specifically and how to engage. Uh, and the first line of it, and I think the thing that informs a lot of what we talk about, is those concerned with public safety and human life should take sufficient care to avoid inadvertently putting them at risk. So in other words... When you're going about doing this research, you're doing it to help protect public safety and human life. Just make sure that you, A, communicate that really well, B, that you avoid doing something that uh, might 
might be unpatchable, right? Like if heart bleed happens uh, in cars and you publish that fact, no matter what your initial intentions are, there might be some repercussions. In other words, that might be something that's seen as leading to uh, reduced safety and uh, harm, potential harm to human life. Uh, and I think that that's um, one of the interesting things about what we found is that a lot of what we do um, in security, uh, we don't necessarily inject the human element into it. We don't inject mm. that uh, empathy level of understanding other people's motivations, why they act the way that they do. And if you add empathy to what we already do, then it lets you understand people's reactions and predicts people's reactions a lot better so you can plan and adjust for them. That makes sense. So throwing in another monkey wrench, which is just kind of more on a really non-security, non-researcher type level, but do you think technology is out paced legal and societal understanding and when I say that I mean for example as you were saying earlier and in on your posts on your website you talk as cars now as computers on wheels and that's kind of in my mind slightly dangerous giving the average person's grasp of computers Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how sophisticated they can be or can't be so in this whole debate and in your work where do you place the idea of educating the public at large on these issues? Well, we started off by saying that we're, we're seeking a 501c3 uh, nonprofit uh, educational foundation status. Um, we're actively trying to be adopted by an existing one. And if that doesn't work, we're just going to end up filing so we can get on with it and take, take donations. But um, the, the core thrust needs to be public education awareness. It needs to be kitschy and catchy and viral and fun. Um, but just – make it clearer um, where we should and shouldn't depend on technology and to which degree. Um, now, we tried to do that in my TEDx talk on Swimming with Sharks. We, we tried to do that with our limited funds in our first year. But we'd really like to throw you know, well-funded, well-crafted um, viral videos um, and PSAs at the issue. Uh, and I have a business plan to do just that. So um, what we don't want to do is scare people away from trusting technology, but we also don't want to have blind trust and faith. And at least speaking for myself, you know, I, I've long been concerned that um, we've shifted from an era, era where technology does the things we want it to, to now I think if you look at social media or hyper-connectivity, you know, we, it's not about can we make it, it's about should we make it. It's not, you know, is this possible, is, is this sane or is this sound? And what you're seeing is our technology is now defining us. Um, and I think we should be careful and deliberate. Uh, if, for people who have been following us since day one, we originally had three planks of the platform. We wanted the cavalry to address issues of body, mind, and soul, uh, where soul is like the impact of technology on civil liberties and whatnot. And after a lot of soul searching, you know, Bo made a really cr- clear, incredible case that we, we couldn't chase everything. But that top-line driver was came from a deep concern between the relationship between technology and society. Um, and depending on where you are on looking down the road or noticing its effects, you know, you'll get more or less philosophical. But what we knew everyone could agree on and what was happening in real time was there really hasn't been a succinct and clear and credible voice for safety in technology. Even the, 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 the tiny amount of people who are concerned with security for the Internet of Things – 90% of them go straight for privacy issues and blow right past safety. 
And our clever little retort there is, of course, we love our privacy. We'd like to be alive to enjoy it. And um, what we realize is at this point, given the adoption rate and given the relationship between technology and our lives, someone has to be a clean and clear voice of reason on this. And uh, for lack of another alternative, that that someone has been the cavalry, uh, despite our terrible name. Uh, if the cavalry isn't coming, it falls to us, it falls to you, and it falls to anyone listening to this to to seek the education and start getting the visibility to make informed risk decisions, both as manufacturers or as citizens. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I've given this some thought, um, as I know Josh has too, but, you know, your question about whether or not the legal frameworks have kept up with the technology, uh, I would say, of course they haven't. We haven't caught up. We haven't kept up with the technology. If you look at, uh, you know, I'm in mid, my mid-30s, and when I was uh, growing up, we had mainframe computers. Um, then we changed over to desktop computers. Now we've got mobile devices, laptops, uh, uh, mobile devices and tablets, and we're starting to see wearables and implantables. That's four generational shifts just within my lifetime, mm. you know. I'm pretty ahead of the curve technologically, but I don't even really get the, the wearables and technology, wearables and implantables the way that a native growing up today would. So I think that, you know, we haven't been able to keep up because the rate of innovation, because the rate of change has happened so quickly. Um, so the, you know, to the degree that my, my conjecture is right, that the legal system, um, is a codification of social norms. Uh, if our social norms haven't caught up to the technology, then our legal system can't have caught up to the technology. You know, I have this line I said a couple of years ago, and it's more true now than when I said it. But someone asked me about why I didn't like PCI as a compliance response to threat. And I said, well, the adversaries are two years ahead of the researchers. The researchers are two years ahead of the product vendors. The vendors are two years ahead of the market. And the market's two years ahead of compliance. And the compliance is two years ahead of the law. So with that lag on a lag on a lag on a lag, the question to, I think, then Cyberzar, uh, Howard Schmidt was, well, then how can the government ever keep up? And he was just flat-footed on you know, Sunday morning news. He didn't have an answer. Um, I didn't mean to stump him, but, but that is the nature of things. And I think it's not a lesson to get overwhelmed by. It, what it says is brittle, specific, contextual um, security regimes or policies are going to break. They will not and cannot keep pace. Um, and that's part of the impetus as to why we've taken more of a capabilities and ready posture um, that's, that allows for innovation and change and growth, but still captures the first principles and the essence of this. And since you have so many policymakers and lawyers and, and, uh, and, and public policy figures who listen, you know, I think the appropriate, you know, it's our opinion that the appropriate response to such a, a rate of change uh, is going to merit these first principles and these capabilities approaches. And that's one of the things we're encouraging so that we don't repeat the sins of the past, but rather learn from them and make things that are more flexible and more able to adapt as necessary. Well, I think that is probably a perfect statement to end the show on because it's very true. There are a lot of risks out there, but a lot of benefits from new technology. And as you said, it's just being prepared for whatever may come and um, having those next steps ready to make all this new technology safer for everyone. 
So I want to thank you, Josh and Bo, for coming on the show. And for our listeners, um, please check out their website. As I said, we'll post it with this link. And if you feel like you want to sign their petition, there are links to that on their website. So please check it out. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So I just stopped recording, and I will talk to Sina and see um, when he wants to post this. I think he'll probably try to post it tonight or tomorrow. And what we do is we aggressively.